Uh, our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And uh, that can be found in page number 1,203 of the Pew Bibles. And this morning, as we've been singing about all morning, we will be considering the topic of joy. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Pray. Father, as always, we come before you this morning knowing we need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to understand what it is that you are saying to us. And so we ask God that you would meet us in our weakness and our frailty and that you would open up your word to us, that we might adore your Son and that we might rejoice in all that he's done for us, even though now for a little while we may experience various grief and trials. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I uh, was thinking about times in my own life when I experienced inexpressible joy, or another way to say that would be joy that left me speechless, I kind of started when I was a kid, and I remember uh, my parents never bought us really nice gifts for Christmas. We, we always saw what our friends were going to get or our cousins were going to get. We always saw what was in the uh, ads that they would send to your house, and we never got any of those things. And then one year, my parents splurged and bought me and my brother a Nintendo, and I just couldn't believe it. I, I was sitting there in utter disbelief that, that my parents actually went that far and spent that much money for me and my brother. And then I fast forwarded a little bit in my life to a play that I did uh, over with the Yes Company in Modesto. 
And we did the play at uh, the Performing Arts Center there at, at Modesto Junior College, which seats like 900 people, and we, we filled the place every night. In fact, we had to turn away people every night. And at the end of every performance, the, the whole crowd would rise and, and would just have the standing ovation. And I remember standing up there with my fellow classmates and just sort of being so overcome with joy that, that I couldn't even hardly breathe. It was such a profound experience. And then I remember my wedding day. The entire day, I, I had this like unselfconscious joy. Like everything was just wonderful. Uh, getting ready in the morning was wonderful. Uh, spending time eating breakfast with my uh, groomsmen was just phenomenal. The whole day of greeting everybody, seeing my bride come down the aisle. And then I remember when my first child was born. I, I cried because, because I was so overwhelmed with joy that, that there was no words for the experience. And then I remember seeing him over there on the table as they were like weighing him and like yanking him and pulling him. And I just remember being filled with so much love for this person whom I had just met. And for most of us, we only describe joy as inexpressible. If it's one of those experiences in life where we reach that mountain top of joy. But in our passage today, Peter wants us to know that we can know inexpressible joy at all times, no matter who we are and no matter our circumstances. First, we're going to see that who the recipients of inexpressible joy are, and then the reason for inexpressible joy, followed by the risks to inexpressible joy, and finally, the result is inexpressible joy. So, as Peter's writing here, who is he writing to? Who are the recipients of inexpressible joy? Well, he's writing a letter that's meant to be circulated uh, among several churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to these churches who, just like you and me, are dealing with their own grief and trials on a daily basis. And he's writing to encourage them in their faith. He's writing to remind them that their grief and trials are actually not in the way of their knowing inexpressible joy. The first thing he does is introduce himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is a title, but it's more than a title. It's his official position within the church given to him by Jesus Christ himself. And being an apostle means Peter has been authorized by Jesus to speak on behalf of God. So everything Peter's about to say, it's as if Jesus himself were saying it. And then he tells us who he's writing to. And these are the recipients of inexpressible joy. So as Peter's addressing them, he's also describing for us the kind of person we must be too if we want to know this inexpressible joy. And the first thing to see is that recipients of inexpressible joy are those who are elect. He's writing to those who are elect. Every human being is born sinful. Uh, on our own, as the Catechism reminds us, we have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. And so we don't even realize how bad things are because of how we're born. In our sinfulness, our joy is completely dependent on our circumstances. If life is going well or how we would want it to go, well then we have joy. 
But if life is not going well, or it's going in a way that we would not prefer, then we don't have joy. That's the worldly experience of joy. But the recipients of inexpressible joy are those who God chooses to take out of that kind of life. When God chooses someone, he invites us off of that roller coaster. Which makes you wonder, why would God choose one person and not another? Peter tells us he chooses us according to the foreknowledge of God. Which means God chose you because he already knew you before he chose you. He didn't just know about you or what you would be like or what you would do in the future. No, his foreknowledge means he had a personal, intimate knowledge of you in the past before he created the world, and that's why he chose you. He's always loved you. Not because of anything you did or didn't do. Paul says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. His love and affection has always been directed towards those he's chosen from all eternity. Another thing about recipients of inexpressible joy is that they are exiles in the dispersion. So to be an exile in the dispersion just means that we know this world is not our home and we live this life longing for heaven. When God chooses someone, we become exiles. And exiles are people who are forced to live outside of their homeland, who never fit in, and who always long to return to where they're from. When God chooses us, we become citizens of heaven, exiled on earth, waiting here for Christ to take us home or to return. Which is why Peter says we are elect exiles of the dispersion. When the Jews were exiled from Palestine by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and forced to live as exiles, the Jews called everyone living outside of Palestine the dispersion because they had been dispersed throughout the world. And now Peter's taking that term meant for Jews living outside of Palestine, and he's applying it to Christians exiled from their home living outside of heaven. Because we're strangers and aliens in this world. We're not of this world because Jesus has chosen us out of the world. And we are in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, as many of you know, is just a big word that means being made holy. We're being made into someone who loves and delights in keeping the law of God by the power of God's Spirit inside us. And God does all of this for a purpose. He does it for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Notice, God doesn't choose us because of our obedience. He chooses us for obedience. Our obedience is the result, not the cause of his, uh, the, the result of his choice, not the cause. So God knew us and chose us and is sanctifying us so that we obey Jesus because recipients of inexpressible joy are those who obey their master and who are sprinkled with his blood. Sprinkling with blood is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system where priests would sprinkle blood as a sign of washing away impurity. It's a picture of being cleansed from defilement. It's a picture of healing and wholeness, which means Peter is saying two seemingly contradictory things here. First, we've been chosen for obedience, 
and we depend on his sprinkled blood every day to wash away our sins. Because that's the Christian life. We must continue to obey because that's what we've been saved for. And we must continue to be forgiven because sin is what we're being saved from. And this is who Peter blesses. And since this is also us this morning, this blessing is ours, which is why I began the service with this blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter wants these Christians and us to know God's favor and his power multiplied in our life. He wants us to know God's peace, which here means this internal sense that all is well with my soul. He wants that multiplied in our lives, all because of what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done and are doing. So if you're here this morning, and you experience life on this earth as an exile whose true home is heaven, if you're growing in holiness because you're growing in your love and delight in God's law more and more, and if you strive to obey Christ while constantly depending on his sprinkled blood to take away your sin, then you are a recipient of inexpressible joy. So what is our reason for inexpressible joy? Well, if you ask someone who is seemingly full of joy and gladness, what is the reason for their joy and gladness? Most of the time in this world, you would get an answer something like this. Well, I have a wonderful family. I, I, I married just the right person. I have the perfect spouse for me. I love my job. I, I got into my first choice for college. My team won the championship. I mean, who knows? The list is endless. And none of these things are bad and we should take joy in them. But Peter wants us to know that inexpressible joy is not only a joy that is so deep and true and good that words cannot describe it, but it's a joy that is caused by God and kept by God. Nothing can take it away and it will last Forever, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Old Testament is full of blessings for God. You'll, you'll read, Blessed be God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Blessed be the Lord. And what Peter does here is he takes this Old Testament blessing for God and he combines it with a blessing for Jesus Christ, making Jesus equal with God. And he's appraising God according to his great mercy. You see, God has great mercy because when he looks down on us, he sees how poor and pitiable and naked we are. He sees us in our sin and our addiction to worldly joy that cannot last, and he chose to have mercy on us by causing us to be born again to a living hope. He didn't have to, but because of his great mercy, he has done that. He gave us a new life with a hope that is so real and good and true and guaranteed because it's the kind of hope that has the power to keep us alive forever as we learned last week. And he did all this 
He says, through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus proves everything Jesus claimed. He claimed to be God in the flesh, born of a virgin, and he proved it by rising from the dead. He, he claimed to die a death that can take away your sins, and then he proved it by rising from the dead. He promises us that if we put our trust in him, that one day we too will rise from the dead, and he guaranteed it by rising from the dead first. He promises us to give his Holy Spirit to us, to be with us, and that he'll always be with us to the end of the age, and he guarantees that too by rising from the dead. So it is through the resurrection of Jesus that we have a living hope, and it's how we know that we have an inheritance waiting for us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. All the promises to Israel in the Old Testament perished, or they were defiled because of sin and death. The glory of the temple faded. The prophets, the priests, the kings all died. The land was conquered. The temple was destroyed because all of that was a shadow pointing forward to heaven. And Peter's saying that now the real thing, as we're exiles waiting to go into the ultimate promised land, right? The real thing is waiting for us because God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we know this inheritance is ours. And we know it's being kept in heaven for us because we are those who, Peter says, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice two things. It's God's power that's guarding us and protecting us. And he's doing it through our faith. Right? So God's power, our faith. What God does, what we do. Which means we believe, but God keeps us believing. We are required to believe, but we keep on believing because of the power of God who caused us to be born again to this living hope in the first place. And he's the one keeping our inheritance for us and guarding our faith all along the way. So when we feel weak, when we feel our faith ebbing, we return to this promise and we know, Father, I don't make myself believe I just believe and you keep me believing. So do you believe? Well, then this inheritance is yours. Now, when Peter says we're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed, he makes it sound like salvation is in the future. And that's because it is. In the New Testament, salvation is both, or also, past, present, and future, right? We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been justified, God has declared us righteous, we are being sanctified, He's making us holy, and we will be glorified. One day, we will enter into the ultimate promised land and experience the fullness of this imperishable inheritance waiting for us. 
We've been given tickets to the big game, though we have to wait for the game before we can go. There will come a day when our salvation is revealed in the last time, and on that day we will be fully and finally completely saved from sin. On that day there will be no more sadness or sorrow or pain, and we are being kept and guarded by God's power through faith until that day. And this is the reason. This is why you and I can have inexpressible joy in the midst of the deepest grief and trial because no one can take the reason for our joy away from us. We have a living hope. We have a risen Savior. We have an unfading inheritance. And we have an all-powerful God keeping us believing His promises. This is why Paul can command us to rejoice. When when Paul commands us to rejoice, he's saying, look at everything you have to rejoice in, and then rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. Since all that is true, we have every reason in the world to know constant, unbroken, inexpressible joy every moment of every day. So what are the risks to this inexpressible joy? Because if we're being honest, there's probably not a single one of us who experiences constant, unbroken, inexpressible joy every moment of every day. We do experience depression. And Peter's not living in a fantasy world where somehow he thinks we should all be like the Stepford Wives who pretend life isn't hard and everything is great no matter what. He knows that you and I experience very real threats to our joy. We are facing real grief and trials. We are dealing with fear and failure. We are dealing with sin and temptation gnawing at our souls every day. We have regrets. Sometimes they bubble up inside of us and all we can do is groan with shame and embarrassment for the things we've said and done. Or because of what our foolishness has cost us or those we love. We deal with loss and sorrow and sickness and we have loved ones who don't know Jesus. And we know that the sappy, sentimental Christmas joy our culture tries to feed us, to take it all away, we all know that somehow that's insufficient and in fact it can even make it all worse. But Peter wants us to know that the grief and trials of this life can exist side by side with the kind of joy he's describing. He says this, he says, in this you rejoice, pointing backwards to everything he's just said about God's mercy and causing us to be born again. And this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So when he says, in this you rejoice, he also goes on to concede that now, during the time that we are exiles on this earth, for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. 
And these trials do present a risk to our inexpressible joy. They're a risk because they tempt us to believe that what is seen is more real than what is unseen. They tempt us to believe that our joy is still dependent on worldly joy and circumstances. That our relationships and our health and our wealth and our plans and our comfort, our security, have all got to be just right if we're going to be happy. And no one, not even Peter, is going to deny that the temptation to lose our joy when life brings us grief is very real. But what the Apostle Peter, who by the way has authority to speak on behalf of God, wants us to know is that the grief and trials we face are not actually a risk to inexpressible joy. First of all, notice he says, in this you rejoice, though you have been grieved by various trials. That word rejoice here, it's in the present tense. So he's basically saying, in this you are rejoicing, though you have been grieved by various trials. Which means this inexpressible joy is the kind of joy that is available to us at the very same time we are experiencing grief and trials. See, worldly joy, as soon as you take away what brings you the joy, it leaves a vacuum, and what fills it is sadness. But Peter's talking about the kind of joy that exists side by side with sadness. We don't deny the reality of grief and trials, but this joy can permeate through our grief and trials. He also reminds us that our grief and trials will only last a little while. It's temporary. It will come to an end. But our inheritance is eternal. And right now, it is waiting for us. And it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by the power of an all-powerful God. The other thing he says about our trials is that they are necessary. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Which means two things. First, it means that God will keep you and protect you from every possible grief and trial that is not necessary. And it also means that every grief and trial we do experience comes to us from God. The God who chose us. The God who's loved us before he even created the world. Who had mercy on us when we were poor and pitiable in our sin. And then caused us to be born again to this living hope in which we rejoice. That God who knows all things. He is the one who decides our grief and trials are necessary and then sovereignly brings them into our life for a purpose. 
Here at Emmanuel, we hold to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is a confession of our doctrine written in 1561. We believe that it summarizes what the Bible teaches and what the Bible emphasizes. Listen to how it explains this idea. It says, The Almighty and ever-present power of God so rules heaven and earth and all creatures that leaf and blade, which means a leaf doesn't fall from a tree without God's power, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, these risks to our joy are not really risks at all because our loving Father believes they are necessary for us and we can trust Him because He chose us and He loves us and He is good. And then Peter goes on to tell us why they are necessary. They are necessary so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, grief and trials test our faith. They tempt us to believe that God is not good and that inexpressible joy is not ours in Christ. But just like fire burns away impurity from gold, our grief and trials burn away impurity from our faith. That's what's happening. It's painful, but it's producing in us an eternal weight of glory. The more pure our faith is, the more we experience God guarding us by His power through our faith. The more pure our faith is, the more real God is to us. The more confident we are that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The more sure we are that God gave Himself to us and had mercy on us in our sin, and caused us to be born again, the more sure we are that Christ, the Son of the living God, defeated sin and Satan and freed us from them. So our grief and trials, far from being a risk to our joy, actually they are the very thing God uses to purify our faith so that we can see even more clearly all that we have to rejoice in. What is the result of this? Well, it's inexpressible joy filled with glory. Peter tells us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the results of God choosing us and sanctifying us and moving us to obey Jesus and sprinkling us with his blood and having mercy on us and causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that cannot fade, kept in heaven for us. By God's power, we're being guarded through faith, right? The result of all of that is that we rejoice Though for a little while we do have grief and trials. Because our grief and trials 
purifying our faith. The result of all of that is we love him. Which is so counterintuitive. Even though we've not seen him, we love him. Love for God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is the normal experience of a Christian because all our grief and trials do is make us love him more. And we believe in him, which just means we trust him. When he speaks, we trust that his words are true and that they are the will of God for our lives. His commands are not burdensome, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And so we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So not only is it the kind of joy that leaves us speechless, but it's a glorious joy that leaves us speechless. When I think of something glorious, I think of when I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time. And and I remember thinking like, ah, yeah, you know, it'll be cool, you know. And then when I got there, it was stunning how grand and glorious it was. I think of entering into Yosemite for the first time and just just seeing how unendingly glorious and beautiful it was. God is granting us, at the same time as our grief and trials, glorious, inexpressible joy because of everything that Christ has done for us. And as we bask in this joy, no matter our grief and trials, he says, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. My friends, this is the Christian life. And this is the kind of joy we celebrate during Advent. We don't celebrate sappy, sentimental, culturally Christmas joy that is dependent on whether or not we get a Nintendo or not. We celebrate unending, unfading joy that can never be taken away from us, that all grief and trials do is make that joy more real and more inexpressible. When the angel told the shepherds on that night of Jesus' birth that they had good news of great joy, they meant this kind of glorious, inexpressible joy that will last forever. And it belongs to us even in the midst of our grief and trials. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this Christmas grateful for a joy that we cannot even articulate. We thank you for joy that is glorious and beyond even our ability to comprehend it fully. A joy based on all that you've done for us, from choosing us before the foundation of the world, to causing us to be born again, to granting us hope of an unfading inheritance. God, may we keep our gaze focused on this joy, this season. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.